Welcome to a very special 12-part mini-series in partnership with Google Zeitgeist 2019, a collection of talks by people who are changing the world. Here entrepreneurs, business leaders, storytellers, scientists, and dreamers share their visions of how we can shape tomorrow. What are the real chances Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or Donald Trump will win the 2020 U.S. presidential election? This episode features expert statistician Nate Silver, as he weighs the advantages and disadvantages each candidate brings to the race and gives his early prediction on who is the best chance of winning. Statistician, founder, and editor-in-chief of 538, Nate has established himself as the go-to election guy using numbers and data to analyze both elections and baseball. He broke out as a media darling in 2008 when he predicted that Obama would beat McCain and he called the election one hour earlier than all other outlets. Nate is also a political analyst for ABC News. To watch the video of this talk, please visit youtube.com slash Google Zeitgeist. That's Google, Z-E-I-T-G-E-I-S-T. We are now about three months from the Iowa caucus, um, barely more than a year from the general election next November. It's gonna be a fairly meat and potatoes overview, first of the primary, the Democratic primary, um, and then the general election. Um, this is probably more than 20 minutes worth of material. I will try, rather than talking really fast, not to say every single word that appears on the slide, um, but um, trying to pack a fair amount in here. Um, so we are not at a stage right now. <laughs> We are not at a stage right now where we could build a model and build a really robust model based on polls alone or anything else alone. Um, primaries tend to be quite volatile and there are some fundamental questions that we would need to ask about the Democratic primary. At the same time, we are at a point now where um, more often than not, the candidate who is leading in the primary at this point in time actually wins the nomination. Um, Donald Trump was leading at this point four years ago, Hillary Clinton was as well, Mitt Romney four years before that. Um, this year you kind of have co-leaders in the polls right now, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, depending on whether you emphasize state polls or national polls, um, and you have a very large field, but there are some fundamental questions here. First of all, I think the thing that everyone's asking about everything after Trump is, hey, how much has the world changed in a post-Trump environment? Um, as an empiricist, my bias is to say, hey, maybe not all that much, that Trump is a one-time event, um, that having populism bubble back into American society is not the most surprising thing in the world, it's always been an undercurrent and so on and so forth, but, you know, but questions like how much does the party establishment influence the nomination, traditionally a lot, maybe not as much in the post-Trump era. Um, there are also more pedestrian questions where how much do Iowa and New Hampshire matter? Traditionally, very difficult to win the nomination if you don't win um, either Iowa or New Hampshire but also the Democratic Party is becoming a lot more diverse. Iowa and New Hampshire are really, really white and also very liberal in terms of Democratic primary electorate. And so, um, so how much is the past a guide to the future is kind of the thing that I'm trying to do, but is uh, difficult at this point in the Democratic primary in various ways. I'm also kind of fascinated between um, gaps between what you might call purely objective ways of looking at an election, so um, polling-driven models, um, and kind of what the conventional wisdom of the zeitgeist, as you might put it, is about elections. Um, and as is often the case, there is some tension this year between, um, between what the polls say and what the conventional wisdom is. If you go to the Real Clear Politics polling average, um, it has Biden at 27%, Warren 22, Bernie 17, and then a big drop off. Um, there are also places that we can go and actually place bets on election outcomes, prediction markets, um, and they don't match the polls 
all that well. They have Warren at 45%, 44% to win, despite in national polls being a little bit behind Biden. Um, they also discount Bernie's chances relative to how well he's doing in the polls and are bigger on um, uh, Mayor Pete, for example, than Bernie. Um, I could go spend all 20 minutes on prediction markets alone, um, but there is this tension. I think one thing um, I found is that people tend to always be looking for an alternative to the pulse and be looking for, hey, I have the pulse of the election, I understand how things are trending. Um, historically, though, a lot of times when the polls are wrong, the conventional wisdom is even more wrong. Um, polls in 2016 show Donald Trump as an underdog. We have as about a 30% chance to beat Hillary Clinton. The average TV pundit thought he had no chance whatsoever. So I'm sometimes wary when, um, instead of throwing our hands up and saying, hey, it's too early to really know all that much, people make very precise assumptions based on very little data instead. Um, but with that said, I want to go through, um, go through kind of a devil's advocate case um, for Biden, and then for Warren, for and against. Again, this is not who I would prefer personally, it's just trying to forecast the election, what things work in their favor and which ones don't. And then in the interest of time, everyone else gets lumped together into the field category. Um, so there's a perception that Biden's chances are fading and that he's not doing as well as he was before or as he was supposed to. Um, I think that's at least partly wrong. He's still ahead in national polls. In fact, his numbers have been quite steady except for a bounce he got after he entered the race at around 27, 29%. Um, he has the most endorsements, so if you believe that the party is powerful and influences what voters eventually do, um, I mean, there's not like a ton of enthusiasm, frankly, by, for, by party elites, as we call them, for anyone, but Biden does have more endorsements from a more diverse range of endorsers than anyone else. Um, he also has a very diverse coalition, or relatively diverse, at least. Um, Biden is the only candidate to have a significant number of black voters in his coalition. Um, and historically, uh, African-American voters have picked the Democratic nominee in every election since, I think, 1988 or thereabouts. Um, so usually a good group to have on your side are the coalition of African-American voters on the one hand and maybe older white voters on the other hand who turn out in reliable numbers. Um, in some ways, in fact, one could argue and I'm kind of going to argue this two-thirds of the way and hedge a little bit, but you could argue that there are similarities between Biden and Trump in the sense that his coalition consists of a lot of white working class and black working class voters who sometimes don't get as much coverage in the mainstream media. So there's been a lot of predictions of Biden's demise. He's had bad debates. Um, he's had accusations of, of um, handsiness, I guess you would call it. Um, <laughs> problems with Ukraine, and lo and behold, he's kind of sitting there at 27% in the polls anyway, which is not fantastic, but it's not bad either. It's probably still in first place. So there's kind of a Teflon nature to his candidacy. Um, but there are real problems. Um, I tend to cut to the chase, and I think, I think if you look at polls, voters are concerned about the age of both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Um, both in the abstract, if you ask voters, hey, how do you feel about someone over the age of 75? A lot of voters say, eh, it's a little bit too old. Um, and when you ask in particular, do you think age is a concern, age and health is a concern for Biden and Sanders? A substantial minority of Democrats say, yes it is. Very few say that about Elizabeth Warren, who is 70. Um, so, I don't know, right? The whole subtext, I think, in some ways of the race is, hey, how is Biden performing relative to, relative to how people might expect him to be? 
Um, his debate performances to my subjective view have not been great. And objectively, when we take polls, we do polling with Ipsos, our polling partner about debates. Biden gets relatively low marks for how he's performed. Seems not to affect his overall numbers that much, but every time there's a debate, I think probably Biden's strategists are cringing a little bit, like, is there gonna be another kind of moment that like, we have to walk back later? Um, and it's potentially, potentially a liability for him. Um, I think probably the most overrated thing in presidential politics is money. Um, because there is so much media coverage of the races, then money might not go as far or matter as much. President Trump, by the way, did not raise a terribly large amount of money for his primary campaign or general election campaign, didn't hurt him very much. At the same time, um, Biden's fundraising is pretty tepid. You're not gonna have the very robust campaign organization of the, of the types that Hillary or Bernie or Obama had um, in all these Super Tuesday states, for example, and so that might kind of um, make his path a bit narrower. Um, and the last one I'll highlight here is maybe the most important, which is voters currently believe that Biden is the most electable candidate. The question is, how would that halo of electability hold up if he were to lose Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, maybe Nevada as well? How would things persist after that? Um, you can go back to the example of 2008, where Hillary Clinton was perceived as more electable than Barack Obama until Obama won Iowa, a very white state, and alleviate a lot of voters' doubts, including African Americans, by the way. Um, so a similar trajectory there might mean that Biden's frontrunner status would be more vulnerable, potentially. I do think you have a fairly clear top two, meaning Biden and Warren, and then a gap between anyone else, and here are some of the reasons why there are reasons to be optimistic about Warren's campaign. Um, she is ahead um, in polls of Iowa, probably, and possibly New Hampshire. There actually are not that many recent New Hampshire polls. But these are two states that are quite white and that are quite liberal. That is her constituency. She's also extremely well organized. She has a lot of boots on the ground in Iowa. That organization can matter a lot as well. So everything that would predict a strong Iowa candidate kind of works in Warren's favor. She's a good retail campaigner, gets big crowds at her rallies. All these things that would correlate with success in Iowa are there for Warren, and she leads in the polls there. Um, she's also done well with voters who are most excited and informed about a campaign. Um, what that might mean is that when people take a longer look at Warren, they put kind of their priors about Pocahontas out of their head um, and look at a candidate who is a very capable speaker and has a lot of ideas and, and at least Democrats tend to like her the more they see about Warren. Always a good sign when that second, third repeat impression um, helps with you. Um, also, she is probably the most broadly acceptable candidate in the field. If you ask Democrats, okay, you don't have to pick one person, just tell me, would you think this is a good nominee or would you be upset if this person were nominated? Warren usually has the highest, yeah, she'd be a good nominee numbers, and among the lowest, I wouldn't like this numbers. Um, and so what happens when a candidate, like let's say Bernie finishes third in Iowa, um, he drops out, um, first of all, he might endorse her because they're kind of ideologically aligned, but his supporters are probably gonna be more inclined to gravitate toward Warren than anyone else's. The same might be, by the way, for, for Biden's supporters. If Biden were to drop out after a poor finish, um, a lot of his voters actually have Warren as their second choice as well. So a nomination process is in some sense about building consensus, and she seems to be the most consensus-oriented candidate at the moment. Um, at the same time, there are real liabilities for Warren as well. Um, I think the biggest one right now is her stance on healthcare, where she's kind of taking heat both from Bernie's side for not, uh, for not being the originator of Medicare for all and being a little bit more ambivalent and ambiguous about what her version of that 
would mean and how she paid for it, but also from, um, from the center and from moderates, from Mayor Pete and from Biden, um, about how much it would cost, uh, about whether it's better to have Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it, as Buttigieg would say. Um, but for a candidate who kind of is supposed to have a plan for everything, then the fact that she doesn't have her own health care plan is, I think, maybe the most glaring and obvious liability. Um, her coalition, like I mentioned so far, is not terribly wide, it's deep, but it consists of a fairly predictable set of people. You want to be able to build beyond that. Um, there are concerns about her electability from some voters. Some of those, I think, are, are unfair. I think, um, I think there is no particular reason to think that women are less electable than men. In fact, this so-called wave that Democrats had in the 2018 midterms, a lot of those were women candidates who did extremely well, but still, there is some hangover effect from Hillary that she's kind of working to overcome, I think. And we see kind of a shift, by the way, in the media narrative, where um, whenever someone is rising in the polls and everything looks good for them, bad stories get dismissed, good stories get emphasized. Um, but you can kind of see the tide shifting. You saw in the last debate how when you're the front runner, then you take a lot more incoming heat, and it makes the degree of difficulty a lot higher. Um, so I'm going to go very quickly through kind of the case for and against maybe a surprise nominee emerging. Um, and to some extent, it's saying, hey, look at the liabilities for, for the leading candidates, and how could these candidates counter that? So when you have three leading candidates all over the age of 70, then maybe someone who's younger, a Buttigieg or a Harris, could potentially benefit right there. Um, there are resources sitting on the sidelines still. There are stories in the Times and the Post about how people are still looking for a white knight, a candidate to enter the race late. I think it's not very realistic to think that, oh, Mayor Bloomberg is going to save the day or something, right? Um, but it could mean that um, if a candidate like a Harris or a Booker or a Klobuchar or a Buttigieg were to gain momentum, then you might see resources pile up behind that candidate. And there are now and then surprise winners at this stage. Um, by the way, when you have fields this large, um, we count 17 candidates still. There used to be, I think, 26 by our count. Often things are very chaotic. This is the kind of chaotic large field from which Donald Trump emerged unpredictably, or maybe not, in 2016, um, from which Jimmy Carter was nominated in 1976, and McGovern in 1972, and so forth. The problem is those are actually more the exception than the rule. Um, so look at all candidates who are polling at under 5% at this point in time, a couple of months before Iowa. The only candidate to come back and win his or her nomination was Jimmy Carter in 1976. So it's one out of roughly 40 or 50 people. The odds are not terribly strong. Um, also, these individual candidates have their own liabilities. Bernie, for example, has a very enthusiastic 15 or 16% of the electorate. He does not seem to have a great strategy for appealing beyond that base, and, and that base might not be large enough. Um, also, the Democratic Party is trying to find ways to winnow the field. Every debate, it gets harder and harder to qualify. Um, and also, you have to get at least 15% of votes in the state to get any delegates. So you cannot kind of creep along and get 10% here and 12% there. You have to have consistent performances to actually really accumulate any chance whatsoever at, at a delegate hall. Um, again, I don't want to come to terribly firm conclusions. I want people to keep an open mind. I do think, though, that there is a fairly clear top two here. If I had to pick, looking at the cases I just made, right, I think I'd rather take Warren's set of assets and liabilities than Biden. Um, I think the early state polls can tell you something for sure. Um, I think she's been a more consistent performer throughout. But I think it's close. I think that big gap you see in prediction markets and conventional wisdom where all Warren's emerged and Biden's flatlined, I think that's not entirely right. 
Um, nonetheless, if you look at all the candidates outside the top two collectively and you're doling out probability, you'd have to collectively assign um, reasonably large probabilities of one of them winning. Neither Biden or Warren are in a position where they're a commanding front runner, certainly. Um, there is desire, again, by both um, the party and by the media to kind of make the race more complicated again. And when you have so many candidates on these, things are a little bit unpredictable. So, so you know, I have basically Warren as... 1A, Biden is 1B. If you want a second tier, it probably would involve Bernie, I think, certainly, um, and probably Mayor, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is fairly strong in Iowa. And then after that, I don't know. Um, but that's kind of my quick and dirty overview of the race. <laughs> I'll try to give you now a very quick and dirty overview of the general election in four and a half minutes here. Um, fortunately, there's not all that much you can really say about the general election that is all that meaningful at this point in time. If you look at polls right now of the general election, they're off by about 10 points on average from the actual results. So whenever you see a poll, an NBC News poll, showing Joe Biden is leading um, President Trump by nine points, you can just toss that out as like not a terribly meaningful point in the news cycle. Um, instead, the kind of key question for me is, can President Trump replicate the circumstances by which he won the election in 2016? So President Trump was not very popular when he won the election in 2016. He had about a 38% favorability rating on the exit poll in the election that he won. Um, but he won for some combination of basically three reasons. Number one is the Electoral College. He lost the popular vote by about three million votes. Actually, the popular vote was not that different than Romney versus Obama in 2012. Um, but Trump's votes came in the right places, meaning in states with a lot of white working class voters in the upper Midwest in particular. Um, number two, Hillary Clinton was almost as disliked as Trump, and so um, he is fairly effective at dragging people down into the muck with him, and in general now, you know, media coverage is very skeptical. It's easy to have candidates who are, who are not very popular, and in fact, already, all the leading Democrats have, have tepid, at best, favorability rates with the general public. The third one I think is a little bit underappreciated, which is that um, Trump in 2016 got a lot of benefit from the doubt from undecided voters. People who decided late, people who disliked both Clinton and Trump were kind of like, well, why not? Let's take a chance on Trump. What could happen? Um, <laughs> and that was a key factor. If undecideds had broken evenly, if voters who disliked both candidates had broken evenly, Clinton would have had a fairly solid Electoral College victory. Um, will he get the benefit of the doubt this time around as the incumbent president? It used to be that being an incumbent was an advantage, less and less so. We saw in the midterm last year, incumbents in both parties getting booted out of office. Voters are more impatient, so that's a big open-ended question for Trump. Um, with that said, again, if you want to kind of lay out an optimistic case for Trump, you have plenty of ammunition to make it. Um, first of all, incumbents are re-elected the majority of the time, depending on how you count, probably around two-thirds or 70%, depending on how you um, draw up your data set. The economy is still pretty good across a variety of fairly robust metrics. Um, there is evidence the Electoral College could help him again. If you look at his approval ratings in Wisconsin, which is the most probably important state, what we call the tipping point state, where in a very close election, it would be the 270th electoral vote. He's at about 45% approval in Wisconsin, which is not super good but meaningfully better than 41% nationally and would make his chances a lot more viable. So it might mean, for example, the Democrats would have to win a state like this one, like Arizona, hardly impossible, um, but it does mean the Electoral College might be a strength for Trump again. Um, and maybe most importantly, um, there is not an obvious Democratic frontrunner that's an obvious slam dunk nominee. 
Um, of course, I think a lot of the talk about electability is overwrought and overrated, but still, you have candidates who voters think are too old, you have candidates who voters think are too far to the left, or maybe like Buttigieg too inexperienced, et cetera. And so, um, so Trump will have opportunities to try to prove that he is the least worst alternative, again, and win the Electoral College. Um, at the same time, one fairly major problem for Trump is that it's kind of a popularity contest in election, and he's not very popular. His approval rating is 40.7% as of this morning. It's a big gap, 54.6% disapproval rating. That's a big problem for Trump. Um, how does he get above 40.7% to somewhere 43, 44, where then maybe turnout in the Electoral College can help him? Um, you know, I don't really know. It's fairly difficult, especially when impeachment so far has seemed to lower his approval rating. Also, it's worth keeping in mind, for all the talk about the Trump base, Democrats actually have a larger base than Republicans do. It's more diverse. It's hard to get to turn out sometimes. So when you do have high turnout like Democrats had in 2012 or in 2018, for example, they tend to win elections at the margin. So very, very quick concluding thoughts here. Um, you know, I think some of the coverage about Trump is a little bit irrational. I think there is kind of irrational kind of... Um, uh, I don't know if you would want to call it fear, but his base it's alone is probably not enough for him to win. He has to win over independent voters as well, persuade swing voters, undecided voters, uh, and potentially that path remains open to him as it was in 2016. At the same time, I think if Trump were able to behave like a more conventional politician, um, his chances would be a lot better. He does have successes to talk about in terms of the economy, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of Supreme Court nominees, and whatever else. If you could, like, if you could somehow incept Donald Trump's brain and say, just keep it cool for a year, stay off the Twitter, right? Uh, you control people a little bit, but try to remember swing voters, then his chances might be pretty decent. If you're getting the actual Trump, as you've seen right now, then maybe a little bit less than, than decent. But thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to this mini-series in partnership with Google Zeitgeist 2019. To find out more information about Google Zeitgeist, including speakers appearing in previous years, please remember to visit youtube.com slash Google Zeitgeist. That's Google Z-E-I-T-G-E-I-S-T.